Repic, if you don't know me, I'm lead pastor here at Crestmont. You've already heard we're in this season of fasting and seeking the Lord together, and I just want to tell you how encouraged I've been as your pastor to see just so many people involving themselves in that fast in one form or fashion, and I've just really had the privilege this last week of praying with so many of you, and I just feel so blessed to be part of this church family, and so Thank you uh, for being on this journey as we seek the Lord together. Um, Over the years at Crestmont, we've observed two special Sundays in January, which we're doing again today. Uh, Justice Sunday in connection with MLK Day, which we'll observe tomorrow. And so that's uh, what we'll be looking at today. And then Sanctity of Life Sunday, uh, which will be next Sunday. And so I'm glad you're here today. I hope you'll join us uh, for next week as well. Uh, Today is second Sunday, and so our kids are in the service. I always just want to welcome them. Hello, kids. Can we just welcome them here with us? And just a reminder that uh, we do have little packets um, by the back doors with some coloring sheets and uh, things that the kids can do during this sermon. All right, we're going to be in the Old Testament book of Amos. This is one of my Uh, favorite uh, places to be in the Old Testament. Uh, The Old Testament was written long before the birth of Jesus, and so much in it points forward um, to the promised Messiah, who is Jesus. We've spent time during Advent in December in the Old Testament as well. Let me just give you some context so you can understand these passages in Amos chapter 1 and in chapter 2. And I'm going to do something unusual. I don't think I've ever done this. I'm actually going to use the same uh, scripture text for two weeks in a row, both for this message on Justice Sunday and for next week on Sanctity of Life Sunday. So we're going to get familiar with the first two chapters of Amos. There's so much here that I'm not going to be able to get to it all today. But you have heard us mention this before. By this point in Israel's history, a civil war has occurred. It has split Uh, the nation into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The southern kingdom is most commonly referred to as Judah, and the northern kingdom uh, is most commonly referred to as Israel. They had different kings, different systems of worship, uh, so on and so forth. So Amos is from the southern kingdom, but he prophesies in the northern kingdom. And he prophesies during the reign of a king called Jeroboam II. Now, These two kingdoms, Israel and Judah, are surrounded by a bunch of other kingdoms. And the ancient world was a treacherous, violent place. These nations were often going to war against each other, breaking treaties with one another, killing one another. It definitely was a time of violence. Before the northern kingdom of Israel, this was a time of unparalleled prosperity that caused major changes in their society. And if you can just track with me for a minute... Uh, The explanation I'm about to give you will help you understand what we're reading when we get into the book of Amos. In in this period of time, which this is the 8th century B.C., so it's a long time before Jesus was born, there were three big social forces at work that really weren't the responsibility of any one person. It was just changes were happening in the culture, in the society, that caused Israel to to rapidly change the way that they had lived their lives. Up until this period in Israel's history, Israel was, for the most part, a nation of small farms. 
all right? So there were small family farms, and you would survive by growing your crops. You might trade some with your neighbors. If they had something you didn't have, you might be able to sell a little bit. But by and large, you were able to get by in Israelite society just living on a small family farm, working the land like probably your ancestors had done a long time before that. But in the time in which Amos prophesied, things changed almost overnight. And there were three forces that changed things in Israel. The first was colonization. I think I have these up on the screen. The first was colonization. Basically, Israel had been successful in its military exploits and had expanded its borders. And this means that it came into possession of new land. But when it came into possession of new land, the king decided basically to give that land to his friends, right? Which was a small elite ruling group in Israel. And so this meant that the wealthiest people in Israel owned more and more land because they were getting all of this land that Israel uh, was acquiring through their military exploits. The next, we'll call it specialization. And that's just a fancy word to describe an economic reality in Israel at the time. This is what was happening. Before this period of time, you would grow what you needed, maybe extra to sell or trade, and then you would eat, you know, you would survive off of the land. Well, now, as people started to get huge pieces of extra land, they started to innovate, and they had ideas. They said, well, we'll plant a vineyard and just grow grapes, and it'll be a huge vineyard, and then we can sell those grapes in the land of Israel. We'll plant olives. We'll do a huge olive grove, and this means that we can grow more and more olives. Well, what this resulted in was that those big farms, basically commercial farms, were able to what? to sell their product for cheaper than the small family farms could, right? And this made it very hard for these small family farmers to survive, so hard that many of them had to start to borrow money to survive. And when they were not able to pay their debt, then oftentimes they got their land taken from them. And the time in which Amos prophesies, land is being taken from the poor all of the time because they're not able to pay their debts. And so when you don't have land anymore, what do you do? You move into the city, which takes us to our third, third force here, urbanization. And this means that more and more poor people were congregating in the cities. They didn't have land to grow things on anymore because of these huge uh, changes in society. They didn't know how to navigate it, and it left them powerless and often vulnerable. As a matter of fact, many of them would end up in slavery. Now, with that as the backdrop, when Amos begins to prophesy, he actually doesn't prophesy to Israel. He prophesies to all of the surrounding nations, including the southern kingdom of Judah, and then he zeroes in on Israel. So we're going to read a larger passage of scripture this morning in Amos chapter 1 and the beginning of 2. And listen, there's a lot of names and places, and it may seem like this is hard to track. We're going to unpack some of this even more next week. But I'm not going to ask you to stand because it's a longer passage, and I'm going to give some explanatory comments along the way to, to help you track what we're reading with here. But it'll be on the screen behind me. Let's begin in Amos 1.1. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa. The vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah, that's the southern kingdom, and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel, that's the northern kingdom. He said, The Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. 
the pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. This is what the Lord says. Now here, he's going to start addressing surrounding nations one by one. The first one is Syria, whose capital is Damascus. It says, for three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not relent. Because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth, I will send fire on the house of Haziel that will consume the fortresses of Ben-Hadad. I will break down the gates of Damascus. I will destroy the king who is in the valley of Avon and the one who holds the scepter in Beth Eden. The people of Aram will go into exile to Ker, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says for three sins of Gaza. Gaza is the capital city of the nation of Philistia. Even for four, I will not relent because she took captive whole communities and sold them to Edom. So so Philistia had taken into captive, into slavery, whole communities and sold them into slavery. I will send fires on the walls of Gaza that will consume her fortresses. I will destroy the king of Ashdod and the one who holds the scepter in Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron till the last of the Philistines are dead, says the sovereign Lord. Cheerful so far, right? Verse 9, this is what the Lord says. For three sins of Tyre. Tyre is the capital city of the nation of Phoenicia. Even for four, I will not relent because she sold whole communities of captives to Edom, disregarding a treaty of brotherhood. They had broken a treaty with neighboring nations. I will send fire on the walls of Tyre that will consume her fortresses. This is what the Lord says for three sins of Edom. Now this nation, this is interesting. This is what's happening. At first, Israel prophesies to complete foreigners. But now he begins to prophesy to nations that are related by blood to Israel. They have as their common father Abraham. So these nations are closer um, in relationship to Israel. For three sins of Edom, even for four I will not relent because he pursued his brother with a sword and slaughtered the women of the land because his anger raged continually and his fury flamed unchecked. I will send fire on Teman that will consume the fortresses of Basra. This is what the Lord says, for three sins of Ammon, even for four, I will not relent, because he ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to extend his borders. I will set fire to the walls of Rabbah that will consume her fortresses amid war cries on the day of battle, amid violent winds on a stormy day. Her king will go into exile and his officials together, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says, for three sins of Moab, even for four, I will not relent, because he burned to ashes the bones of Edom's king. I will send fire on Moab that will consume the fortresses of Kiriath. Moab will go down in great tumult amid war cries and the blast of the trumpet. I will destroy her ruler and kill her officials with him, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says, for three sins of Judah. Now listen, this is how prophecy worked in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, very often, kings were surrounded by prophets. This was true even in pagan nations. And you would surround yourselves with prophets so that in a time of battle or in a time when everything was on the line, you could get a word from your God, right? The kings of Israel and Judah had also surrounded themselves with prophets. And one thing we know about Israel in this time period is that they were absolutely sure that God was on their side. As a matter of fact, they were sure that all of this economic success that they were experiencing was coming because God's blessing was on their nation. So, 
This isn't how it played out. But imagine that Amos is standing in a room like this with the Israelites gathered and he's giving this message to them. When he's prophesying against the foreign nations, you could have expected amens and hallelujah. Take them out, Lord, because those are our enemies. Those are the people that we're often going to war against. And in fact, that is what people would have expected from a prophet. Mostly to prophesy against your enemies because they were in service of the king right? But then he gets a little bit closer. He starts prophesying against the blood relatives, but these were like cousins that you don't like, you know, that you don't want to see at the holiday, and, and that's what these cousins were like to Israel, so they probably even still were like, oh, this is great. He's saying it like it is. He's bringing it home. He's willing to say the hard stuff, and then he prophesies to their brothers in the south, Well, they had just fought a civil war against these people. And so they're thinking, this is even better. God is going to pour his judgment on Judah while he's going to spare us. So at this point, they are definitely amening and hallelujah-ing. All right? It says, for three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not relent because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees because they have been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed, I will send fire on Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says for three sins of Israel. Now listen, this is completely unexpected. I promise you, in the picture that I just created for you, you would have been able to hear a pin drop. Or maybe they would have done that religious thing that we do in church. Oh, now the preacher's talking to my neighbor. You know, let them have it, right? Let, but it doesn't apply to me. They Here, this is completely surprising to them. But guess what, friends? The rest of the chapters of the book of Amos are a prophecy against Israel. God had a few things to say about these other nations, but he has a lot to say to Israel through the prophet Amos. And we're just going to read the first few verses of his prophecy. It says, For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge in the house of their God. They drink wine taken as fines. Now we're just going to stay in these first few verses. I just want to point out, we're going to say more about this next week. But Amos chapter 1, with all of those prophecies against all of those nations that you may have never heard of before, are all about violent war crimes. But when God starts to talk to Judah and then to Israel, he's not talking about violent war crimes. He's talking about the way they've set up their society that leaves certain groups of people behind. So what is God so upset about in verses 6 to 8? Well, we're just going to mention four things. Now, that phrase, for three sins, even for four, is really just a poetic phrase for God to describe that this nation's sin has come to fullness. Um, God goes on to list way more than just four sins of Israel, but as it turns out, we're going to look at four today. So first of all, in verse 6, Amos 2.6, they sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. What is God saying? Well, some have wondered if this has to do something with bribery, but probably the word sell is the cue, is the clue to what God is getting at. Amos is condemning the unjust 
and the cruel enslavement of people over small debts. That Talking about a pair of sandals may even mean uh, cheaply selling slaves. Like it has become easy to buy the poor. Like you can buy the poor just by giving someone else your pair of shoes. It's easy to purchase. Now this is the most interesting thing to me in all of this. That all of what Amos is describing, this buying and selling of the poor, may have been completely legal. And I mean legal even in terms of the Old Testament law, because here's why. Giving loans to the poor was something that was encouraged as an act of love and mercy and virtue. It says in Psalm 112.5, good will come to those who are generous and lend freely. Throughout the Old Testament, this is something that was encouraged. And so this happened. I mean, people gave these small loans to the poor. It's just that when they weren't able to pay it back in Amos' day, there was no mercy. So they went to the court, and the court gave a just verdict that this person, this is how it worked in the ancient world, this person now had to be in slavery to the person who had given them the loan. It may have been completely possible that the people who were doing this, buying and selling the poor, were doing it through entirely legal means, not being corrupt, not lying about anything, doing it out in the open. However, they had found a way to use the justice system to hurt people, and it completely missed the heart of God. It's just like sinful humanity to take even the good commands of God and find a way to twist it to miss his heart. Today, we might find similarities in this in the way that those who lend money take advantage of people who are in weak or desperate positions. Verse 7, they trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. The language here means that Israel as a nation is trampling on the heads of the weak. God is getting at a heart attitude here because he's not talking about any particular method at this point, but he's talking about a heart attitude. He's saying, it is my heart to protect the weak and the vulnerable and the poor among you. And you, as an attitude in your nation, this is not something that is valued. We might find parallels today when people and even churches and nations are tempted to leave behind whole groups of people who are hurting. In the latter half of Amos 2.7, father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. This is a kind of immorality surrounding physical intimacy but it has more to do with just that. The context of this whole passage is slavery. And so what Amos is getting at is that some of the slaves who are being brought into homes are not just being used for work, but for pleasure as well. And this is dishonoring to the Lord. Today, we might find a parallel in the kinds of things that can be found on the internet and the underbelly of slavery that supports it. Amos 2.8, they lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. Besides the idolatry that's mentioned here, um, there's also this picture of people extracting from the poor resources so that they can live in more pleasure. In the Old Testament law, if a garment was taken from the poor for payment, it could only be kept until nightfall. And then it had to be given, God given back. God built 
that system of mercy into the law so that someone who had nothing to pay would have something to cover themselves up at night, right? But what's happening here is that loans and fines and interests are being extracted from people in such a way beyond what's fair and right. Of course, God is concerned what's fair and right, but people are extracting it so that they can drink better wine, so that they can experience pleasure. Now, in my final few minutes before you, I just want to make a few points. First of all, we're going to talk about this next week, but preview to next week. Isn't it interesting how these sins, maybe at first glance, seem far less grievous than the ones the other nations committed? I mean, the other nations are doing violent, terrible things. These are primarily economic sins, and yet this is what God is addressing with his people. So, some points. First of all, God is concerned not only with individual sin, but with social, systemic sin as well. Let me give you an example of this. We have a seven-month-old daughter, soon to be eight-month-old, and we love it when she takes a nap. Amen? Hallelujah. And there are some things internally for her that make a good nap possible, right? If she's fed, if her tummy isn't upset, right? If she's not all congested from a cold, right? There's some things that are just, you know, located in her. They're going to decide if she's going to be able to nap good or not. But there are some environmental things as well that make napping a possibility, right? Like if my other two kids can stay quiet during her nap, you guys do great. (laughs) All right? Um, If the temperature is right, if she's not disturbed, all of those things. Well, this is the Bible's view of sin, friends. The Bible has plenty to say about sin that is located right here in my own heart, right? And I am responsible for it. I am responsible to repent. But the Bible has an honest enough view of the human condition to say sin isn't only here, it's also in the environment. It's also filled human relationships and human institutions. It's corrupted the way that things should be. And so systemic sin, when it's out there, is called injustice. And systemic righteousness is called justice. That's what we mean when we say justice. That this is the wholeness of God's picture, what he intended in human relationships, in human society, how he wanted people to be treated and taken care of, and so on and so forth. Now listen, I meant to say this at the beginning of the sermon. I know we live in a day where there are competing ideas about what justice is. And some of those voices are better than others. But I just want to say this. I believe justice was God's idea, right? And so no matter what the world says, I'm not going to let it silence me. And today we're just looking at the word of God to say, okay, what is God's picture of a just society? What is God's picture of what it means to treat people justly. And maybe more than ever, in a day when there's so many confusing confusing voices, it's important for us to get to the word of God and to see this. Secondly, if you aren't the victim of systemic sin, it's hard to see it. Listen, the people who were suffering in Amos' day, they saw it. They were experiencing it. They had lost their farms and so on and so forth. But Amos is talking to people who are participating in these systems of injustice, and they don't even know they're doing anything wrong. 
They're using the courts. It's just business as usual. It would have been so easy for them to just say, the economy is changing. The times are changing. Small farms aren't going to work anymore. This is the new and greatest thing, so on and so forth. They can't see it. And this is why God sends prophets. What prophets do is they begin to protest the way that things are. They begin to agitate. This is Amos's job. If you read the book of Amos, it is one of the most abrasive books in the whole of Scripture. Why? It's because he is intentionally trying to be intrusive. He's intentionally trying to be in your face. He's intentionally trying to be abrasive. He comes across as unpatriotic. All of those things would have been offensive to his hearers, but he's trying to wake them up and say, do you see how inch by inch, little by little, after all of these years, years, you've wandered from the heart of God as the nation of Israel? He's trying to get them to see that there's even a problem. And this is still the case today, friends. You know, if, if you have never experienced you know, mistreatment by the justice system or by the police, it's hard to believe that that happens to anybody. If you've never experienced racism, it's hard to believe that that happens to anybody. If you've never been kidnapped and trafficked, it's hard to believe that there's over 12 million slaves in the world today, right? It's hard to believe it if you haven't experienced it. If, if you don't have a friend or you don't know one or it wasn't your story that you were almost aborted and then and then your life was rescued in some kind of way, then you might not realize the urgency surrounding that issue and how every life is filled with purpose and with meaning. If you didn't experience an unplanned pregnancy and, and felt all of the you know, aloneness that comes with that, it might be hard for you to understand all of the issues that surround that and the lack of support that's there. We tend to see the sins that hurt us. And we tend to be blind to the ones that don't. And so God sends prophets. Thirdly, systemic sin is the fault of many people. And so the solution is only found when many people repent. Amos is not directing his message at only the king or at only one person. He's asking the whole nation to repent because this is the nature of systemic sin. It involves many people. How many of you have read the novel Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck? I, I was stranded in the Philadelphia airport, and I read this novel one day. I was stranded there for eight hours, and I read this entire novel sitting there. But it's set in the Great Depression, and it's following this family who's traveling during the Great Depression. But there's these little side stories that he tells, and one of them is about a farmer who's losing his farm because he was unable to pay the bank the mortgage anymore because his money in the wake of the economic collapse in the Great Depression, his money wasn't worth anything anymore. So he's unable to pay, so the bank is sending out a bulldozer to bulldoze his family farm, the farmhouse that's on the property, to evict him from the property. He's so upset by this, his family has been on this land that he grabs a rifle and he goes out and he purposes in his heart that he's going to shoot the guy on the bulldozer, shoot him off the bulldozer and save his house. And then he realizes it's not this guy's fault. This guy who's actually doing the thing, bulldozing his house, 
really had nothing to do with it. And this is one of the hardest things about systemic sin and systemic injustice is it's hard to blame one person. As a matter of fact, if we blame one person, we're probably missing the point. This is why Amos is saying there needs to be a community that repents, a community that changes. God needs to change many hearts if he's going to change this issue. Fourthly, God's compassion is aroused when the weak are mistreated. I think we know this. You see it in the passage There's few things that get God worked up as much as when the weak and poor and vulnerable are hurt. He is the God of the fatherless and the widow, the poor and the oppressed. Now listen, that's good news for us. We love it when God's compassion is directed for us. But God's compassion is also aroused and and directed toward people who might be easy to overlook as well. And my last point I want to make here about the passage is that because we've received grace, we're a people of justice. Because in the Old Testament law, which we're going to talk about more next week, God set up all of these protections to protect weak and vulnerable people. And his rationale for it, he says it again and again and again in the Old Testament. He says, I gave you an example, Deuteronomy 15, 15. He says, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. And the Lord your God redeemed you. This is the heart of why God says these things. He's saying, don't you remember? You received my grace. You were slaves. He's telling Israel. You were slaves in Egypt. You received my grace. And that's why I want you to be a gracious people to the weak and the vulnerable in your midst. See, what God is saying to them, it's more than just behavior. It's their heart. He's saying, when you aren't that, it shows that you're abusing my grace that you don't realize how much grace I've given you. And friends, if Israel received grace because they were delivered from Egypt, how much more grace have we received because Jesus went to the cross for us? Amen? And if anyone ought to be concerned about the poor and the weak, if anyone ought to have compassion for them, it ought to be us. Not because we're saying that's the right thing to do, but it's because we're saying heaven directed all of its compassion toward me, toward my life, So there's plenty of compassion to give to other people. Of course I can listen to someone who has a story that might be different than mine. Of course I can hear a story of someone suffering, even if it's unfamiliar to me. Of course I can do that. What is it to listen to somebody when Jesus died on the cross for me, right? It's nothing. Of course I can do that. Of course I can be patient and kind. Listen, I want to end this sermon. I know we're over. But I don't want to end this sermon without just answering the question, what are some things that we can do? First of all, this is very simple. First of all, believe that justice matters to God. Friends, I say that on this Justice Sunday because I find that very many Christians don't. Either out of ignorance, they've just never heard the kinds of things that I'm saying today, because even in our churches, we have a tendency to not preach the whole counsel of the Word of God. Or because when I share stuff like this, they're suspicious that some pastor or politician has a political agenda. Listen, you may be wondering, Joel's talking in these ways. Do I have to agree with his politics? Do I have to agree with what he thinks about economics? No. Listen, but with all the authority I have as a, as a minister of the gospel, which isn't very much. It's like a little bit, but I'm going to use it right now. All right? Listen, with all of the authority that I have as a minister of the gospel, I do want to tell you this, though. You are required to go as far with this as the Bible goes with it. And the Bible is your boundaries too. 
It's just I find that very many Christians have not explored how roomy the Bible is on this issue. How far it goes on this issue. And I want to encourage you, before you hold on to the way you look at the world, let the Bible examine the way you look at the world and make adjustments where necessary. All right? Because it goes a lot farther than we're often willing to admit. We, we tend to, all of us do it, I do it, we tend to gravitate towards the parts of the Bible that reaffirm life as it is for us, especially where it's working for us. And we tend to ignore the places that challenge us, that, that might call into question the way we're living or the priorities that we're making, so on and so forth. Secondly, repent of ways that you participate in injustice. It's possible for us to participate in injustice without even knowing that we're doing it. I really think that Amos was talking to people, many of whom did not even realize they were doing anything wrong. Many of them were worshiping in the temple. And God, in his greatness, in his mercy, he will come close to you. He'll send a prophet, so to speak, come close to you and show you, hey, your attitude of apathy towards this person or this community or this neighborhood isn't helping the issue. You're actually participating in it because of your attitude. Or, you know, when you live in this way, you're actually perpetuating some of the problems for other people. Listen, when God surfaces something like that in your heart, don't wallow in guilt. Just say, God, thank you for showing me. Now show me what the next step is. Show me how I can order my life differently. Thirdly, do something to agitate others towards repentance. This is the ministry of Amos. I want to say this because I've been praying in this direction. I want to be a church that celebrates that people took a step to do something more than we nitpick about people doing and saying everything just exactly the right way. You know, as a Christian, it's hard to do something around this issue. Sometimes we're so afraid of offending people We're so afraid of being misunderstood or whatever that it just paralyzes us and we end up doing nothing. I want to be the kind of community that can say, no, we're going to celebrate when someone does something, when they take a step. And it might not be how I would have done it. It might not be how I would have said it. I might not even completely agree with it, but I'm going to tell my brother or sister, you know what, you took a risk to do something. Now, here's the other side of that coin. If you don't do it in love, you haven't done anything. See, especially surrounding justice issues, I find that a lot of wounded, hurting, angry people are drawn to this issue because they're trying to find a voice. And I'm telling you, if you don't find your affirmation in Jesus, you're never going to find it in these justice issues. And that's going to take you about one inch down this road. Your anger is going to take you like one inch down this road. And then you're going to be tired, you're going to be jaded, you're going to, all of that. Listen, MLK said it himself. He said that love was the only force that was going to change anything. So either we do it and say it in love, or we don't do it at all. And lastly, remember this. Do something, but remember that the testimony of your life speaks louder than anything else. Sure, I'll celebrate if you post something on Facebook, but I want to see you live it. Because that's what's going to challenge me. That's what's going to challenge me to change. I don't know that I have ever been changed by a Facebook post ever in my life, in any meaningful way, ever, like ever, all right? But I have been changed by watching the lives of people who pour themselves out in mercy, who pour themselves out in love, 
who aren't looking for attention, but just do the thing that God is calling them to do. See, I believe that when a whole church responds to the voice of God and says, we are concerned about the people you're concerned about, it unlocks another area for God to work powerfully among us by his Holy Spirit. It opens up a whole other area of mission. We have a sister church. If the worship team could come forward, we have a sister church in uh, Birmingham. You can read about it in Alliance Life. By the way, if you don't know about this publication, Alliance Life, it's free. You can subscribe. It's just stories from our sister churches and missionaries, and um, uh, we have copies out by the coffee out there too. But there was a story, and you can read it for yourself. I'm not going to share the whole thing, but our sister church in Birmingham, Alabama, was planted 15 years after we were, the Birmingham Gospel Tabernacle. Little history lesson, the early Christian Missionary Alliance, alive with the Spirit of God, filled with the Spirit, broke all kinds of social norms. There were women evangelizing, preaching in our pulpits. Uh, There were uh, white and black people ministering together, worshiping together, and this is in the late 1800s. The Birmingham Gospel Tabernacle was right in the city of Birmingham in the Jim Crow South, and they were an integrated church. White and black people worshiping together. There's something powerful in that, by the way, because that's our anointing. That's our anointing. And I'm intent on claiming back our anointing. Amen? And so they had that going on. But then, you know, like things do, things grew stale and religious. Divisions happened in the church. And before they knew it, they were left with an all-white congregation in this place. And then the civil rights movement started to happen. And by this point, the congregation was defined by infighting, all this stuff. And one day, something extraordinary happened. They were right in the center of the civil rights movement's activity in Birmingham. And like the church, the Birmingham church bombing that tragically took those little girls' lives happened right around the corner from the Birmingham Gospel Tabernacle. One day, MLK and 20 of his fellow protesters showed up at the church to attend service. And you know what they were met with? Elders with guns sending them away, telling them they didn't have a place with them. Isn't that sad? Because God was inviting them into something. God was asking them to participate in a story, and they missed it because they substituted religion for the gospel. You know what happened? In the last couple of years, Birmingham, now Birmingham Alliance Church, repented of that act. And you know what? None of the people who perpetrated it are still in the church. None of them are elders anymore. But they repented as a church and said, there's a sin in the atmosphere. There's sin in the system. And we, by the authority of the gospel, are going to deal with that too. We're going to repent. They published two open letters of apology to African Americans in the city of Birmingham in the newspaper. Isn't that incredible? And said, we will be a different people a gospel people. We won't succumb to the culture anymore and we reclaim our anointing for the glory of God. Amen? I love that word. I love that word. Our hearts are open more than ever before. When I first came to Crestmont, I'm not sure I could have preached a sermon like this just to keep it 100 with you. No judgment. It's just where our hearts were. Our hearts are open more 
than ever before. And I'm telling you, the more we open ourselves to the possibilities of the kingdom, the more we're going to see by the grace of God. Amen? Amen. Can we just give Jesus some praise? Amen.